Well, it's good to be here. Uh, this is, um, I'm gonna scoot this up a little bit. Um, been the fourth uh, go around. And uh, I, you know what I love? The, the energy, you think it'd wane a little bit? No, it just keeps getting bigger and better. So um, I don't know what's planned for lunch, but I mean, I'm excited because that's uh, following the energy here. Um, Terry and I became friends a couple years back, and we have a ton in common. And I, and I love, Cheryl, thank you for being here. You guys are like the celebrity pastoral couple, like, you know, like the, like People Magazine's best looking pastoral couple of the year, right? I know, he hates that. It's just driving him crazy. Um, I met uh, Terry at, and his daughter at a YWAM event, and we sat across the uh, table from one another. And, and a connection started there. Um, and really, I call it a divine intersection where God actually has you meet folks. And I don't really know why. I just know that. The why comes later. And I just try to be faithful in that. And our, a friendship ensued where I feel like I have a brother. Um, brother so much like almost twins. Like we're, there's so many things that are in common um, uh, with us. We're both about the same age, just a couple months apart. Have a legacy of pastors in our family. Uh, my father's a minister in Southern California and married over 30 years. He's been married over 30 years, and, um, and he has daughters, and I have daughters, and they help us look cool. So uh, that's always a really, that's a really good thing. Um, I have grandkids, and you guys are on deck. Sometime down the road, you'll have grandkids, so it'll be pretty awesome. I, I shared this in each of the service, and I mean this each time I say it. In the tech startup culture and in venture capital, they choose a mythical animal to represent a statistical rarity of successful startup ventures, successful businesses. And they call it the unicorn. Because the unicorn is that elusive animal that you rarely see. Is it really, you know, and well, that's a unicorn because it's so successful. And, it, and, it's, and it's stayed the course. It's made it. And I would submit that in the faith community, a pastor who's remained faithful to his ministry, faithful to his marriage, faithful to the calling of Jesus in his life, faithful to the mission of the gospel, faithful to the metropolitan city such as San Francisco, would be a pastoral unicorn. Sounds kind of funny, but that would be a great title if you wanted to give him a title. He's our <laughs> unicorn pastor. Because uh, from my view, from my chair, where I see in the Bay Area, it's very few that have stayed the course as long as it has. You guys are privileged. It's awesome. So Terry, it's fantastic uh, to be in your church, and it's an honor to speak here uh, as, as this is the fourth time. So thank you for uh, inviting me. I want to pray. And in your handout, there's Psalm 145, and we'll read from that. And, uh, and I'll take us through uh, really that passage uh, uh, in just a moment, but let's pray and ask the Lord to open up our eyes to see this passage. Father, we commit our service and our time to you that we've set apart this day. We didn't call the meeting, you did. We just showed up and we, were, we come with your scriptures and we ask for it to do what it has done for thousands of years, which is um, move us, shape us, um, change our thought process and open our eyes to see things about you about this world, about ourselves, and how we're to live in order to just honor you and bless you. So Father, just use your scriptures today as you have so many ways, and use it in a unique way. Make our hearts open to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And follow along with me right there in your handout. I'll read. I exalt you, my God, the King. 
and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. Yahweh is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and your glorious majesty and your wonderful works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone and his compassion rests on all that he has made. All that you have made will thank you, Lord. The godly will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in, his, all, in all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. His, all eyes look to you and you give them their food in proper time. And you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. We're just going to stop right there. The passage goes on. But there's so much of this overwhelming sense this, this uh, tidal wave, if you will, this passage becomes the crown jewel of David's praise to God, where he celebrates this overwhelming aspect of God's goodness, his compassion, his provision, how he sustains all things. The Lord is good to everyone. He has compassion on all that he has made. And when you put this in uh, perspective, when we think of his goodness, the perspective, goodness spans from God's redeeming our lives healing us from a sickness, or walking us through a broken season, all the way to the very simple sunshine, rain, waking up, your next breath. From the macro to the micro, the very personal acts of goodness towards you, or the general acts of goodness towards everyone, this psalm puts it in perspective. Because it speaks of you sustain everything, not just God's people, all people. You are good to everyone, not just God's people, all people, all things. He says this where he says, I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty, your wonderful works, proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts. I'll give testimony of your great goodness, or testimony of his own life, what's happened before him and what will happen. When you put this into perspective, you begin to see something greater than yourself and thus praise and honor and ex, uh, exaltation becomes, it begins to make more sense. You know, you don't think about your next breath until you can't breathe. Like when you're, you know, you know, you play a game with our kids when we go through like a tunnel or something like that. And we play this game where we hold our breath till we get to the other side of the tunnel. And then I think about halfway through, why did I, I play this game? <laughs> This is a stupid game, but I always do it. Even when I'm driving by myself, I like hold my breath and be like, <laughs> passed out. What happened? He held his breath and he crashed. But I hold my breath, and you're not thinking about your next breath until you don't have one. And all of a sudden, you're like, mouth, thank God. That, that, that's that sustaining peace that God has provided each, not day, moment. And all of a sudden, you're like, thank God. 
Thank God. Or when you've experienced compassion expressed towards you, you are compelled to speak of it. When someone does something that is just God's expression of compassion and blessing to you, you want to express that to others. It's compassion for me, and this is why when they asked me about psalms and I picked this psalm, it's compassion, justice, and goodness, and getting a real clear comprehension of that that actually brought me back to the roots of my faith and grounded me in the calling of God in my life. This, this whole concept of compassion. Because I had a major, significant disconnect of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus until I got connected to a component of compassion. And then I began to really understand it. Let me just give you a little bit of my faith journey. I was raised in a Christian home. My father's a Baptist minister of, I should make sure I clearly add this, conservative church, very conservative church. And um, so I grew up in this home. And my folks are wonderful folks. They did their best to raise us. But we had my brother and my sister, and I was the youngest of three, and we had like a set of rules. We're the kind of kids that we, you know, pastor's kids, you go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Anybody else have that? <laughs> like that was like, you should be in my therapy group because we had a lot of church. And we, only, we were only allowed to hang out with, you know, Christian kids and listen to Christian music and watch Christian TV. You know how bad Christian TV is? It's bad. <laughs> And my mom had a set of rules upon which we were to live our lives. She called them the nine nasties. These are things that we don't do because we're Christian. We don't drink. We don't smoke. We don't chew. You know, as a little kid, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. And my brother's like, I don't know, just swallow. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> we, don't, we don't chew. Who chews? I don't get it. We weren't allowed to go to movies. We weren't allowed to go to dances. We weren't allowed to play cards. We weren't allowed to take drugs. That's the only one that made sense. <laughs> we weren't allowed to go cruising. You know, when you're eight, I don't, uh, you don't, you know, I'm on my big wheel. I don't know. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to hang out with girls that did those things because we're Christian. And I remember struggling with that, you know, as you get older, like, you know, my friends at school would say, hey, we're, you know, there's a dance coming. You wanna go, are you going to go to dance? We're all going to dance. You're going to go to the dance. And I'm like, no. I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I remember arguing with my father, saying, Dad, why can't we go to the dance? Can we, everybody's going to dance, and I can't go. Why can't we go to the dance? And my dad would say in a very Baptist, whatever you think Baptist tone sounds like, um, he would say, Son, dancing stimulates the lust of the flesh. And I would say, We know. That's why we like it. <laughs> Just being honest with my father. So we can go to dances. And I had friends that would also say to me, like, we, we, to see the movies. I couldn't go to movies. I remember arguing with my dad. The very first movie I saw, I wasn't allowed to go to movies until I was 18. I snuck out when I was 17. First movie I saw, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can you imagine? That ball's rolling down. Man, I've been missing everything. Like, it was such an epic movie. And during the movie, you know what? I was just mad at my parents. I've been missing all kinds of good stuff. Look how awesome this is. And I remember arguing with my father as a kid, going, why can't we go to the movies? Why can't we go to the movies? And my friends said, you want to go to the movies? No, because I'm a Christian. <laughs> my dad would say, son, what if you're in the theater and Jesus returns? What happens then? I'm like, we won't get to see the rest of the movie. 
that I know. And so I grew up with this tension of these are the things that we don't do because we're Christian. We're Christian, so we don't do this stuff. That was my equation of Christian. Christian, you don't do. And I remember a day, I remember very specifically our dog. We had a family dog. Her name was Sugar. And I remember just while I was sitting in the den or the, dining, or the family room watching probably Christian TV or something stupid. <laughs> dog comes wandering in, sits down. And it popped in my head, Sugar is a Christian. She has to be. She doesn't drink. She doesn't smoke. <laughs> she doesn't play cards. And there are dogs that do, because I've seen this picture right here. <laughs> now, this is a very carnal picture right here. This is just like horrible. Smoking and cards, drinking. Just sin and carnality right there. My dogs would never hang out with that dog. There's no way. <laughs> it's funny, actually. Oh. So and I realized this. I, here's the, here was the light that went on for me. If my dog can be a Christian, what am I doing? If this is what it means, and I had a significant disconnect from my faith that said, is this what it's about? And I began to just really kind of walk away because it had to be more than that or I didn't really care. And so as I went off to university, um, I was in, you know, I still went to church, I still connected, but I wasn't as engaged as I thought. And I remember struggling through this very thing. And I remember reading one time about this passage where Jesus had washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, right at the very beginning, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Somebody didn't show up for work that day. And so Jesus took that person's job, which is the worst job you can have, because they probably smelled bad. And Jesus washes their feet, takes on this form and this role of a servant. And then later on in this passage, later on, there's this where it says, where Jesus says, um, a new command I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, so you too should love one another. As I've loved you, as I've just demonstrated how this works, you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. And all of a sudden it clicked for me. Something was different. I remember in our, in, in our college group, I mean, uh, at the church, there was a lady that worked at the church and she had a list of people's names that were in our community right there that were in need. Here's a single mom and her four kids. Gave their name and the ages and where they live, their address and phone number and the situation. Like She was like, these people aren't going to eat tonight if somebody doesn't step in and help them. And she gave me, there's a list of names, people that were struggling. And it affected me. It intuitively affected me. It was just like, this, this isn't right. So I took the list and I took it back to my dorm and I said to the guys, I said, I showed it to them, and we're like, we got to do something. So we took all the money we had, I mean, everything, and put it, and we said, okay, let's go buy some groceries. And you know, college, men, college guys buying groceries is not always a good thing. So we're like, top ramen, we can get a lot of that. And, and you're looking, like, they have kids, let's get them nutritious stuff, like Pop-Tarts and <laughs> Fruit Loops and some bananas and stuff. So we're just like buying groceries that we thought would be good for them college guys. And then we bought a bunch of things. We had about five, five families we were going to drop off groceries. So we had them all packed in the car. We are in our car, four of us. And we're driving to the house. It's late at night. Drive up to the house. Sneak out of the car. Take the groceries. Sneak up to the doorstep. And we set them on the doorstep. And 
ran away. And we got in the car. One of the rules is you get in the car and you had to peel out like you did something wrong. Like, you know, it's like a drive-by blessing, you know, like, hey, gotcha. But something inside of you was like, whoa, that, was, that felt awesome. Like, you got this adrenaline. Like, whoa, that, that felt like right. We did that. We dropped it off at all these houses. Then we went back to our dorm room, got on the phone, blocked the line, and called the number. Mrs. Johnson? Yes? There's food on your doorstep. This is God. And boom, we'd hang up the phone. <laughs> and we were like, we were in a dorm like, Oh my gosh, that was so fun. <laughs> like, that, like, nothing was better than doing compassion in a creative, innovative, heartfelt, anonymous, super kooky way that made us go, yes. And it caused something to come alive inside of me that says compassion is God's connection to the world because there's so much need and so much brokenness that God's people connects to them, can connect to them through compassion, through service, through justice. And it became the center point for my life. As I said, I want to reconnect to faith because being a Christian isn't about what I don't do. It's about how I continually live and love like Jesus, the caliber of love, that they'll know that I'm a disciple by how I love. And it was a big reconnect. This passage, I'll take you right back to it. Verse 8 and 9 is really the center point, and the whole passage is built around it. The Lord is gracious and He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all that He has made. When I read this entire passage, here's four things that stand out to me. I'll just share them with you. First is this, that there's this wow factor that's connected to compassion. A wow factor. There's something that jumps out to the point where even in the verse, starting verse 1 and 2, he says, I exalt you, I praise your name. I honor and praise your name. There's like, ah, it just jumps out. Anytime name is mentioned, we sing all these songs about the name of Jesus and the name of God. Name represents the character. Anytime they're talking about name, they're talking about character. And it's the character of God. So when I give you, so for example, if I say a name, Steph Curry, what do you think? You think of the things that kind of represent his character. He can shoot three points really well. He's a good ball handler. He makes his teammates look good. When you say his name, his character comes with it. And when you say the name of Jesus, you say the name of God, and, you say, and we talk about, I just bless the name, I praise the name, I exalt the name. It's basically saying, I honor and praise your character because God is consistently compassionate and loving. That's the whole connection to name. Second thing I see is an indiscriminate distribution of compassion. Verse 9, where he says, The Lord is good to everyone, and compassion rests on all that he has made. God didn't just spin the world into existence and only care for the ones that show up to church on Sunday morning. You realize he sustains all things. His compassion is good to everyone. He causes the sun to rise and to fall on the just and the unjust, because that's how good his compassion is. It's significant. Third, is the universal acknowledgement towards compassion that jumps out to me. This universal acknowledgement where he says in verse 10, all, all you have made will thank you and the godly will praise you. I mean, all you have made 
All things acknowledge God. All things do. This is universal acknowledgement. So give me, give, give you an example. Like if you read a headline, it says school building collapses, but all the children are safe. What do people say? Thank God. I've had, I've had pagan atheist friends say, thank God. I'm like, really? Because <laughs> something intuitively, it's universal. Where those, of, those maybe of faith, would, you'd say the same story, and they'd be like, oh, man, praise God. It's the same, that passage is so clear to me. All that you've made will thank you for the sustaining and the compassion and the goodness that exists in the world. And there's this universal acknowledgement towards something deeply embedded in every living, breathing person. That is, when you see compassion, you see it happen, it emotionally moves you. Or when you see an opportunity to show compassion, it physically compels you. Because we're made in the image of God. God is a good God, and we have that DNA in us. Fourth thing, and this is where we'll go deep a little bit, is what I call a kingdom advancement that happens through compassion. A kingdom advancement, because he continues in the passage, starting at 11, he says, they speak of your glory and your kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom for all generations. And he goes on to say, 14, 15, and 16, he helps all who fall. He raises up the oppressed. He gives food and, and he satisfies every living thing, every living thing birds of the air. This is God doing this. And what fascinates and inspires me more than anything else as a follower of Jesus is the connection of God's character, compassion, expressed to us, and how the value of compassion is imputed upon me, the DNA, and how it's modeled in an indiscriminate way to live out to all he's, all he's made. Because this is David now talking. Now we're into this time frame where God is talking to us. And today, compassion, goodness, generosity, justice, service, kindness, random acts of blessing become this massive tidal wave of the extension of God and his kingdom. That's how he does it. That's how God is extending his kingdom through you, through compassion. And Psalm 145 just lays out this groundwork. Let me just, let me just walk you through the, the New Testament passages and Jesus' explanation of this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds, your kindness, your service, your justice, your random acts of blessing. And they too glorify your Father in heaven. 2 Corinthians verse five, uh, or chapter 5, verse 20, it says, We're Christ's ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? It's an ambassador represents that country. He speaks for the king or the president of that country. You are Christ's ambassador of the kingdom in your world. As, as though God were making his appeal through you to be reconciled to him. You are his spokesperson. Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite verses. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for service, compassion, justice, random acts of kindness which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has laid out this system of things for you to walk in, and compassion becomes this massive tidal wave to express His kingdom. Psalm 145 isn't just a celebration of what God has done in the past. It's a blueprint. It's a blueprint of how God's people are to live in the present and through compassion to actively engage in a community with the love of Christ inside of us and thus call people to that same journey we're on. That's what Psalm 145 is about. 
The DNA of compassion comes from God himself and he's given us to us as his followers. So here's four universal truths that I found about compassion. I'm going to walk you through from going in from his kingdom. Four universal truths that I've observed about compassion. I believe God calls us to advance his kingdom. First one is this. First one is that compassion becomes contagious. Compassion becomes contagious. This is just a universal truth. This is just something that I've observed as I've leaned into this a little bit. It is a contagious thing. If we're going to build God's kingdom, watch how compassion just becomes viral. We did um, at our church, we had some men that approached me and said, hey, we want to do um, an oil, we want to do a compassion project for some of the people in our community, single moms and widows. We want an oil change because they're probably not thinking about it and we want to do that for them. Wouldn't that be great? And I was like, sure, that sounds awesome. So we had arranged for it. It was coming up kind of a couple weeks down the road. And we arranged near our church, right next to our church is a car wash. And we'd ask, maybe we can use some of the parking lot, some of the stuff, you know, as they bring their cars in. And I talked to the manager. And he said, hey, John, can we, while they're waiting, can we just wash the car for them for free? I'm like, sure. It's awesome. He goes and he talks to the manager of the wheel works next door. You know, the wheel works where they got the bays and they lift the cars up and all the mechanics. And then he said, hey, while they're doing that, why don't they come in? Instead of doing oil change, we'll do all these light tune-ups and all this other stuff if the cars need help. So they come and talk to me. Can we do that? Sure. That's great. They go to... The these two guys go on a rampage. They go across to, to O'Reilly Auto Parts, and they talk to the manager, and the manager there decides that he's going to donate all the, oil, all the oil and all the parts and all the things. And they ask me, do you think we could do that? And I'm like, it saves us money, so yeah, sure. <laughs> then they all go across the street to the AAA and ask the manager of the AAA, and the AAA says, hey, we'll waive all the management, we'll waive all the fees for them for a year so they can have AAA service. Can we do that? Sure. Back across the street is a C's candy. I'm not making this up. There's a C's candy upon which these gentlemen frequent quite often. And they talked to the manager and they said, you know, we want to donate chocolates to these ladies. Can we do that? You know what I said? I need to check it, make sure it's safe. Bring me some samples, but sure. And then it just kept going on and on. Right behind the C's candy is a nail salon. And I don't know what you ladies do in those nail salons, but you seem to like it. Get, you know, pedicures, manicures, and all that stuff. And so while they're waiting for their cars to be serviced, the ladies are in there just getting pampered to death. All these things happen. All my guys were doing was an oil change. Like, we, like, sucked. We're like, so all we're doing is oil. They're doing everything else. They don't even go to our church. But compassion became this viral expression where these ladies are like, this is Christmas. This is the best day of my life. People coming and filling up their car with gas and everything else. It was an unbelievable thing. When something happens, it entices others to be part of serving. And when God's people are serving in the community, it connects you to something, it connects people that aren't connected to Jesus to something greater than themselves. Compassion becomes contagious. Second, compassion is always off balance. It's always off balance. And there's a point to that. I love how in different times of Jesus' day, compassion just was like off. Like here's, here's 5,000 people that are hungry. And what does Jesus have? Two fish, five loaves. That's enough for about 10 fish sandwiches. That's a massive deficit. And it's always better if the needs are greater 
than the resources because the it creates this miraculous space for God to show up. See, if he had 5,000 people and 5,000 sandwiches, it's just a distribution issue. There's no miracle there. It's just food service. But the miracle comes when it's the delta of, I don't have what I need. And this is how God forces us to see this miraculous, miraculous dependency upon God and his character, his name, to show up. First Corinthians says this, God chooses the foolish things and the weak things and the lowly things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So we don't boast. We boast in him. There's a point to it being the, uh, uh, imbalanced. There's a point to it being um, off kilter. Third, compassion disrupts status quo. Compassion disrupts status quo. Uh, there's something about um, this that it's most often my status quo, my rights, my agendas, my ways, my preferences, my schedule, and compassion bumps that a little bit, always seems to bump into my schedule. Uh, and I, I know you guys have these here in, in, in San Jose. We have one of my favorite stores to go to is Costco. Some of you are thinking, how do you need to do a Costco run? That's what we call it, doing a Costco run. You know, Costco is that great place where you can get 11 gallons of milk in a kayak right there, only at Costco, and then, you know, do the food samplers and watch the big screen TVs, dinner and movie for the whole family. It's fantastic. So Costco, we go to Costco, and I've got a family of six, and we're, we're in a cart and a flat. And so when we get in line, I got a cart and a flat, and so it's hard, as I'm watching other lines go by, I'm like, why is our line going so slow? Everybody in the line, we're like, what's going on? And I can't navigate a cart and a flat over to another line, so I'm just like, I'm stuck. And all I can think of is, I got some place to go. I'm looking, what the de what's going on? And I realize, I finally get up to the front, and it's a girl, her name's Natalie, it's her first day. And she's slow. <laughs> and I see her. I say, how's it going? She says, it's my first day. I'm like, we know. And something inside of me said, it's not your agenda, it's not your schedule, it's mine, it's God's. So I said to her, hey, you're doing a great job. Just keep it up. She goes, really? My wife goes, really? You know, it's one of those things, right? I said, yeah. And I looked at my wife, I said, you know what, from here on out, every time we come to Costco, we get in Natalie's line. And my wife's like, you realize she's slow. I said, yeah, but it's perfect. Because it gives us a chance when we get up to the front. But by the time we get to the front, I'm like, I don't care how slow I go. Y'all yeah, can wait because I waited my turn right here. I'm going to hang out with Natalie. And we get to know her a little bit. That was 17 years ago. And every time we come to Costco, we get in Natalie's line. We look for Natalie's line. And it was always the longest. It wasn't hard to find. <laughs> we get in her line, come up. How's it going? Oh, I'm talking about different things. And she found out about her family. And we just hug. And we just, we're having a moment. One time we got in line, she knew as a pastor at church, one time I got in line, she sees me, she waves, and she goes like this, bing, she got engaged. She's so happy. So I get up front, she goes, she asks me, she says, you know, I got engaged, and we're going to get married, and, and would you help us get married? Would you do our ceremony? I'm like, of course. Not, not, not right here, but <laughs> of course. So it's down, the, you know, a year later, you know, so we, you know, continue to see her in line, work out some stuff. So I remember getting in line one time. And I saw her, she had a really sad face. 
so I finally get up there. I'm like, what, what's happening? What's going on? She goes, well, my mother-in-law to be doesn't want you to do the ceremony. I'm like, why? She goes, well, she she doesn't want a pastor from Costco to. <laughs> Like, I don't work here. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a real pet. Like, Kirkland Seminary. This is where I went to seminary, Kirkland. Kirkland Church. Um, you know, everything there is Kirkland, right? Uh, sorry. So, and so I eventually did her wedding. She invited her whole family to Christmas. 20 people the Christmas service sat in the front. She thought it was Christmas, Christmas Eve Mass. I said, sure, come to Mass. The Father John. And, uh, and the story is still being told. We still get in her line. But it disrupted my agenda, my time, my way. And God had opened up something. See, there's never a time for compassion. It's always disruptive of your schedule. And you have to allow it to disrupt. And if you change your mindset, if you go to a restaurant and you get bad service, don't take it as bad service. Take it as an opportunity. God has opened up the door. Because what if you get bad service and you give a ridiculously huge tip? They're like, why? 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 Now you've got this window. See, it changes. It's, the kingdom stuff flips upside down. Last one, very important. Compassion brings Jesus to the center. Compassion brings Jesus to the center. Jesus in his teaching brings out this major point about connecting to compassion when he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. The people are like, when did that happen? Paraphrase. And he answers, and, he's, and he centers it. We see Jesus center in the heart of compassion where he says, whenever you did the least of these, you did it unto me. Meaning you missed it. Because in the, in the, as Mother Teresa says, in the face of the poor, you see Jesus. Jesus is at the center of this. Jesus is always at the center of compassion. We were doing a project out in, um, uh, where we were serving a f- some families where we were actually doing extreme makeover, like Ty Pennington stuff, where we would literally almost knocked the whole house down and rebuild this house. We're doing it in in an under-resourced neighborhood in in San Jose. And we were there and we were doing one of the projects and everything was going perfect. And I'm, you know, working with the foreman and all our volunteers, thousands of people doing all this stuff, you know, new lawn, you know, new plumbing, all, everything. I mean, the house was legit. The last thing you do when you do a house makeover is you paint it. That's the last thing. And our painters didn't, it didn't work out that day. All of a sudden, we have, like, we're, we're down to the wire. We're about ready to do that whole move that bus thing and no paint. There's like, move that bus. Oh, that looks terrible. You know what I mean? They would have been that. Like, like, it would have spoiled the whole thing. And I'm like, where's our painters? And I remember the foreman calling me, like, we don't have, we don't have painters. And I'm like, man, we've got to pray. We just need Jesus to show up. And, and so we were praying, God, we just need you to show up on this. We don't have painters. And there was a construction site nearby, someone doing some, some, uh, some commercial buildings, and some painters that were there that saw us, and they came over. They came over and said, hey, we've been watching what you guys are doing. Are you guys going to paint the house? We're like, we lost our painter. And they said, we would paint it for you. I'm like, oh my gosh, seriously? And so they came, and they, they volunteered their hours and volunteered everything else, and they painted the whole house for us. It was unbelievable, way better than we would have done. And after the end, when we were all hanging out and we were you know, just kind of celebrating, they're there, and we kind of took a little love offering for them just to bless them. And I, and I said, well, I, I'm a little embarrassed. I don't even, remember, I don't even know your names. One guy's, one guy's name is Moses. <laughs> you can't make this up. This is real. It's unbelievable. Second guy's name is Israel. Really? Your name is Israel? Moses and Israel. And the third guy's name is Jesus. 
Now he goes by Jesus. But it's spelled the exact same way. So I'm sticking with Jesus. And the foreman calls and we're like, we're talking to people and we're like, you know, people were praying for us. Like, you know, like, yeah, Jesus showed up. Oh, that's great because we were praying. No, like, he's right here. He's a short little Hispanic guy in Alviso area and he's here. Jesus showed up and we were like dying. Chris like, when does that happen? That shows the humor of God to just remind us, I'm in the center of this. We're, compassion isn't just about doing something good. A lot of, the world does all kinds of compassion. That's good. It's just not great. You know what's great is when Jesus is in the center. Because if we take it all the way back to Psalm 145, it becomes worship. It becomes this connection, a deep connection to exalt and praise God for your goodness to all. And doing that through me as your ambassador? That's the difference between good compassion and heroic. God-centered, Christ in the middle compassion that changes lives and that's what he's calling us to do that's why I was excited about teaching this today because as a church you walk into your workplace your neighborhood and your your sphere of influence the next person you meet the barista you order your coffee whatever if your eyes are open there's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these opportunities to live and love like Jesus so people know you're my disciple, how you love one another. It's a game changer. It changes the city. It changes your trajectory. It changes the kingdom if you live this way. So here's my challenge for you for one week. I'm going to ask you to do this, and I asked all four services the same thing, all three services, is that in the morning for one week, this is your prayer. It's very simple. You wake up and you pray this prayer. Wake up. It's God. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the mind of Christ. Give me the eyes to see. Give me the hands that will serve. And give me the mouth that will bless. That simple. Wake up in the morning. God, fill me with your spirit. Give me the mind of Christ, the eyes that will see, the hands that will serve, the mouth that will bless. And then watch how your day goes. Because if God's pleading with mankind and relentlessly pursuing mankind and compassion becomes his vehicle and you've emptied yourself and said, fill me with your spirit, give me the mind of Christ and let me be ready to see how your week goes. Because all of a sudden it's a game changer. Now you're not living for yourself, you're living for the kingdom. You're living and you're an ambassador of the king. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the chance to be at such an awesome, epic church like Cornerstone. And thank you for the work that you're doing here in this campus, the other campus, and the individual lives of every person here and those that couldn't be here today. That you're extending your kingdom in the realm of everyone's workplace, sacred space, whatever they do. That you're extending your kingdom through compassion. And we have changed our mind. Will you disrupt our lives, our status quo, to be that conduit? of change, to bring Jesus to a community that so desperately needs him. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. amen.